we are going to jump into Romans chapter 13 and talk about the role of civil government. Romans chapter 13. You can turn there. We're going to look at the first seven verses here in a minute. Romans 13. We are getting through this politics and religion series. This is this week and next week are really going to be a pinnacle point, if you will, of this series. Next week, I want to talk about Christian disobedience and what that looks like in Scripture. Um, but this week, I want to lay the foundation for the role of civil government in society. Romans 13. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. The signers of the Declaration of Independence would actually go on after that section and they would list their objections to the king of Great Britain and his tyrannical folly. This is obviously a part of our history. Next week, I want to talk some more about the war for independence a little bit as an illustration. Um, But for now, I want to highlight a particular portion of the very beginning of the Declaration of Independence. It's in your notes and the app. If you see, I'll read it again. That to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men, listen carefully, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Is this true? Do governments derive their, quote, just powers from the governed? Is democracy, which literally means the rule of the people, Is democracy what we want? More importantly, is it what God wants? Does it even matter what God wants? You know, that's just over there. We're over here. God has nothing to do with that. If if the people want same-sex mirage and infanticide, is it wrong to deny them this want? What happens if people want true freedom and less taxation? Do they get it? Or are they too intellectually short-sighted to understand that we can't do that because more government is better. We need more, more, and more. Now, having just tipped off the NSA, who is probably listening right now, hi. (laughs) There is much confusion regarding the Bible's vision for civil government. 
One of the bigger problems, of course, is that Christians, I think, have been duped into believing that somehow the Bible doesn't address the issue at all. And that we as Christians, aside from voting every couple of years, really ought not to get too political because, you know, we're supposed to just preach the gospel. And that's it. Did any of you just preach the gospel this morning? You didn't just do that. And so we have to talk about it. As if the empty tomb isn't, you know, political, right? As if the risen Savior doesn't have political implications. As if the crucified and risen King has, has chosen to remain quiet about his lordship over all of creation and all the world. As if, as if the kingdom of God hasn't been unleashed upon God's creation. And it's now the duty and responsibility of the church to boldly declare the supremacy of Christ and the terms and conditions of, of surrender to him. The reality is, civil government as an idea and concept is actually God's idea and God's concept. We, we go to the Bible to learn about how a church should function. We go to the Bible to learn about how our families should function. We go to the Bible to learn you know, what Jesus demands from us as people who are to take up our cross and, and follow him to Calvary. And we even go to the Bible to find that one verse that'll just give us that quick pick-me-up in the morning, right? That one little thing of nugget of encouragement. And we go to the Bible for a lot of things. And all that is fine and good, but why is it that when we look at civil government and issues of politics that, whether it's war or taxation and and other issues related to that, why is it that we refuse, we refuse to go to the Bible for it? If it is true that scripture is the final authority for everything, for all things, why do we act like it suddenly isn't the final authority when it comes to politics? Some things amiss and few are willing to address it. Now, I want to remind you about how God's covenantal world functions. And this is simply my systematic way of showing you visually how this plays out in Scripture. If you call from last week, uh, we talked about the five-point covenant model. It's it's really, it's all here. The transcendence, the hierarchy, the law, the the oaths, the sanctions, right? And, And secession, time, this this structure that God has built in his Scriptures and in his world. But to start, I want to focus on the first point of that covenant model. And it's here at the top. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Let's read our text. Romans 13. We'll start in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Pay pay, pay very close attention to verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Paul says that there are governing authorities, or if you have the King James, the higher powers. He starts with the, the, basically the pluralistic authorities that are all over everything. There are all kinds of authority over each man. Paul says we are to be subject to them. Why are we to be subject to them? Why is it important to pray for your leaders, as scripture says, to, to, to submit to them? Why should you do that? He says, for there is no authority except from God, right? And those that exist have been instituted by God, which is to say, God alone possesses final and ultimate sovereignty, which is also to say, God is the final court of appeals. There's no one higher than him. You can't appeal to someone other than God, someone with more authority and more sovereignty. You can't. The buck stops with him. God is the sovereign. So no one's higher. So sovereignty, the word sovereignty is simply our way of saying that God has full and final authority over everything. Full and final universal authority. There's no one or no thing that's above God. He alone is the sovereign one, the supreme ruler, the supreme power, the supreme being who is above everything. And yet Paul says that there are other authorities and powers that exist. And and they don't exist outside of God's sovereignty. They exist under his sovereignty because they are, quote, instituted by God. There is no final earthly sovereignty. God is the final judge, not man. There are multiple authorities, and they must be respected because they have what we call delegated sovereignty, delegated structure. From a local mayor to um, local judges, state judges, state legislators, governors, to all the way up to the president, to Congress, the Supreme Court. There are layers to authority, particularly obviously in our nation, and they are to be respected because they have delegated authority. They are not the final authority. They have delegated authority. Are you tracking? God's up here, not the state. Not the president. God is up here. He is the sovereign. And so to reject God's parameters, basically to reject this structure as scripture sees it, is to, uh, to reject God's parameters for all of authority is to reject God himself. We're not lawless people. So from, from self-government to family government to church and state government, each of those spheres exists because God has ordained it. He has instituted it. Better yet, he has ordered it. There is order in God's creation and civil government plays that role. So what you need to know about civil government is that God has set it in place. He has set this sphere, the state, in place both with its authority and its jurisdiction. So read verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. What Paul is getting at is that we shouldn't despise and resist the existence of certain authorities, particularly civil government, because God made it. Watching through all this chaos, the debacle 2016 is the best way you could describe it. And it's easy to maybe get numb to it and say, ah, whatever, civil government, that's just... No, it's a good thing because God made it. But that's not to say, we should respect it, but that's not to say that we just blindly take whatever comes down the pike. Next week, 
I'll demonstrate from the scripture how and why we should resist ungodly governments. That's what the war for independence was about. How to resist ungodly governments. And, and he's not saying, he show, Paul is not showing us what the current government in Rome was doing, but rather what it should be doing. Because if you remember, Rome was a very tumultuous place. Leaders vying and jockeying for position and you know, secretly killing the other emperors so they could become emperor and civil war all over the place. And Christians were tossed to the, to, the, to the lions and ripped to shreds and burned and all these other things. Paul's not describing what was happening in Rome because that was wicked. Paul's describing what should be. So our obedience to civil government isn't unlimited Where God is obeyed and God is honored, we obey and we honor. Where God is shoved aside, we politely decline to obey Caesar because we would much rather obey God than men. But that's next week. Here's our big idea today. The civil magistrate. Again, that's anyone who has a position of political authority. Okay? From local, even township boards and and local, all the way up to the president. The civil magistrate is God's servant commissioned to preserve order in society through the administration of God's law and justice. Paul even calls the minister, excuse me, the the magistrate, a minister or a servant in verse five. So that's our big idea. What are, so what are rulers to do? What should they do? Read verses three to five. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Don't just do it because you might get caught. All right, keep your hand out of the cookie jar, because mom said... So what are rulers to do? Rulers are to terrorize bad conduct, Paul says. So don't do bad things, right? Well, how do we know what's bad? Is it whatever they say? Or is there something above the state that tells us what is right and what is wrong? Of course, the answer is God's law. We talked about that last week. So why, why shouldn't we do bad things, Paul says? Why, why shouldn't you do unrighteous acts in society? Because the civil magistrate is God's servant. The word servant is actually where we get the word deacon from. The civil ruler is a deacon, not in the sphere of the church, remember, but the sphere of the state. He's for your good, Paul says. Why? Why is, why is a civil magistrate who's to terrorize bad conduct, and, and why is that for our good? Because he's preserving order in society. He's providing justice. What does he do? He does not bear the sword in vain. Listen, back in Romans 12, verse 19, Paul actually tells the church in Rome, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Never take matters into your own hands. It's not appropriate for you to avenge yourself. Okay, well, all right, Paul, but does that mean that there's no justice in the world? I mean, I got ripped off. I got scammed or somebody robbed me. So you're, you're telling me I can't, I can't avenge myself, so there's no justice. Well, obviously, of course that's not what Paul's saying. 
Paul says not to avenge yourself personally, but then he comes to Romans 13 and says that God actually has a system of demonstrating his wrath in history. The civil magistrate is God's avenger. That's what Paul says here. He's an avenger in Romans 13, 4. He's a punisher for God regarding civil crime. So we're not to take the law into our own hands. God has what we call jurisdictional order. There's order instead of chaos. Order to how justice is to actually be meted out. The civil magistrate bears the sword, Paul says, which is to say the magistrate has been given a particular sphere to govern, and that is to be governed by justice and law, but not just any arbitrary justice and law, God's justice as it's defined by God's law. There's a hierarchy of power in our spheres There's a hierarchy of power. And the magistrate, who is the one who's to lead and govern the state portion, is to do so underneath the sovereignty of God. He is not outside of God's authority, nor nor should he, or she as it were, take authority into his or her own hands. No, the Bible says that he is God's servant doing God's bidding. So the issue of sovereignty is incredibly important. To make any human institution the final voice of authority in time and on earth is to make this aspect of creation divine. You're tracking. To make any institution, whether it's self, family, church, or state, to make any of those institutions the final and ultimate above God authority is to make that thing divine. It becomes God. This was the problem in the Roman Empire. It was the problem even in the 1600s in, in England. The problem was called the divine right of kings. It started even then with Henry VIII. He was the king and he was the head of the national church. A blending of those two spheres together that are supposed to be separate. But Henry VIII was in fact the head of the national church. He was the head of, of the state. So really there was no earthly appeal beyond him. He was the final Authority, And that was, of course, part of the problem. But you can't be head of the state and head of the church. There was no other sovereignty. It was a violation of the true meaning of separation of church and state. Now, the same thing happened with the imperial cult in Rome, with the emperors. The emperor was the head of state, and the emperor was also to be considered divine. He was God in the flesh, they often said. So, when you become that, you become God, really, You try to dethrone God. And that's point two of the model, the hierarchy. There's hierarchy and order in God's creation. So when you push God's sovereignty aside and man then becomes this self-proclaimed sovereign person, then we have a problem. If there's no appeal over the state, then the state is sovereign. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are endowed by who? The state? Their creator, If the state becomes sovereign, then God is usurped. If Christ isn't king, then Caesar becomes king. So back to the the sovereignty, the spheres again. We're not talking about the sovereignty of the spheres in the sense that they all have their ultimate authority and God has nothing to do with it. We're talking about the sovereignty of God in the spheres. God being over them, directing them what they're supposed to do. And God's authority has obviously been vested in Christ. He's the mediatorial king. He's the king of kings. Nowhere else in God's kingdom is is that authority, that supreme authority given. Which means that each sphere has a limited authority. 
They cannot do whatever they wish. They have a limited authority. So if the state becomes supreme, which is part of the problem in our nation, by the way, then totalitarianism is the government du jour. If the state becomes supreme. If the, if the family becomes the supreme, then you get patriarchalism. If the church is supreme in a society, then you get what's called ecclesiocentrism. Church-centered, which is basically what the Vatican City has and the Roman Catholic Church. So if self becomes supreme and ultimate, then you get libertarianism and not the good kind. So each of these spheres has their own separate government. Self-government, family government, church government, state government. There's order. They have separate spheres for separate jurisdictions, separate responsibilities, separate powers. So self-government on the end is foundational to all of this. For if a man does not know how to govern himself, then anarchy ensues, right? Anarchy ensues. So the function of the family, educate, educate children, dispense of welfare. Function of the church, the administration of the sacraments, the preaching of the word of God and church discipline. What's the function of the state? To administer justice. So individuals and families are absolutely the foundation of all societies. It's the foundation of the the church. It's the foundation of the state. Taxes are paid to the state. Ties are paid to the church. If you don't have self-governing individuals, this stuff doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Look at verse 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, the original language was Greek, and the structure of verse 6 is very, 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 very important. He says, attending to this very thing. You see that phrase in your Bible? Attending to this very thing. Which literally means this and only this. Okay? So let's insert that. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God for this and only this. Well, what is he talking about? Is he talking about taxes? No, he's actually talking about the magistrate being a terror to bad conduct, to being God's servant, to, being, to bringing justice So the civil magistrate is is to only be an institution of what we might call negative sanctions. The the civil government is not an institution of healing. Okay? If we haven't figured that out in our problem of our prison system, can you make someone better by locking them up like a caged animal? You can't do it. Why can't the state make people better? Better. Because only the gospel does that, right? They, they can't do it. So welfare, as far as welfare is concerned, it's in scripture it belongs to the, to the people, to, to, sell, to the self, to, to families and to the church, not the state, because the state is only an institution of what we call, again, negative sanctions. So the rise of the welfare state is actually the messianic problem. The state tries to be the savior and help the poor, right? All the poor people, but they can't be the savior. And so they end up messing it up and repeating the problem and kicking the can down the street. Because the government can't be a savior. So what Paul is getting at in this passage is that that government itself, 
whether it's self, family, church, state, government, order, actually stems from God. There are multiple layers to it, each with a derivative sovereignty, and that the state is to bear the sword and punishing wickedness. So in biblical law, all crimes are considered sins, but not all sins are crimes against the state. The state can't, you know, ah, you were being covetousness, we're going to lock you up. How do you measure that? You can't measure until it affects someone else, right? You You can't do it. But if the civil magistrate is going to actually rule justly, then he must, he must not rule according to the people. That's partly why democracy, the rule of the people, isn't right. We want a biblical republic. So yes, we elect our leaders, but no, they don't get to do whatever they want. They do what God wants. That's how it's supposed to be. But the passage is clear. We are to be good citizens. We are to honor those to whom honor is, is due. Um, Christians should be the best citizens. But what Paul is not saying here is that the government gets our unlimited obedience. Paul is establishing a civil government as God sees it. He is defining in this passage what this should be. Not what is in Rome or not what is even today. What should be. And we are to obey it to the degree that it obeys God. Our big idea again. The civil magistrate is God's servant. He's commissioned to preserve order in a society through the administration of God's law and God's justice. Well, what might this administration look like, right? What should it look like? Where do we go to find out what it should look like? Scripture. Regarding civil justice, the reason the magistrate exists, again, is for negative sanctions, which in turn means that it's to protect something, right? There's a protection involved. that They're supposed to protect people. Magistrates are officers. They are established by God, for the abatement and restriction of evil in society. So their primary task, stating positively, is to protect life and to protect private property. And you can read in Exodus 21 to 23, you can even read in Deuteronomy 21 to 25, all of the ways in which God's law shows what justice looks like. What happens if this situation occurs and one of the Ten Commandments is broken? What what does God say justice looks like? And we can go there and we can learn because Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to establish the law. So how does this all play out? One, enforcing principles of restitution. This is what should be from a magistrate. Enforce principles of restitution. As it stands right now, justice in our nation is not being carried out. Just generally speaking, it's not being carried out. When you have a police officer who... In, a, in the heat of the moment, becomes the judge, jury, and executioner, we have we have problem on our hands. And I get it. It's tense. There's lots of emotion. There, but right now, generally speaking, justice isn't carried out. Restitution, for example, for things like theft, should be enforced by the state. Compensation to the victim is what should happen. Okay. The problem today is that the state becomes the victim and the true victim is left without a shred of justice. So think about our justice system today. A man commits a crime, say he robs a store or a homeowner, and he gets life in prison. Not only does the victim not get compensated back what was taken, the rest of society now has to pay room and board for the perpetrator. 
Restitution to victims underlines all of biblical justice. If someone steals your car, Scripture actually has a couple different categories. One, if they bring it back, there's a restitution, 20%. If they don't and they get caught, there are other stipulations in Scripture for what happens if somebody steals something from you, but they get caught. They didn't do it willingly to return it. There's an even harder um, and more, more costly principle of restitution for them. Next one, because I figured we might as well keep the controversy alive. Enforce capital punishment. There are roughly 21 capital crimes in Scripture. However, many say in the Bible that that's the maximum penalty, not the mandatory penalty. So there are instances in Scripture, you can read in Exodus and Deuteronomy, where it's the maximum penalty. It's not necessarily what has to be done. There are other layers to justice. So there, there are instances actually in Scripture where the victim actually gets to decide the level of punishment. Because they are the victim. They are the ones that need restitution. One of the crimes deserving in Scripture of, of capital punishment is murder. Yet another is rape. Even in God's law, kidnapping deserves capital punishment. You don't take people. The reason that capital punishment is given is because, for example, in a case of murder, the victim is no longer here. The victim is dead. So the victim now becomes God because that person who was killed was made in the image of God. And in Genesis 9, by man's blood shall your blood be shed. If someone commits murder, that's not even in Moses. That's all the way back to Genesis. The principle of life protection of life, someone made in the image of God. Paul affirms in the New Testament, Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1, that these principles of law continue over. Killing, for example, in self-defense or in war is not considered murder. There are different Hebrew words when it comes to thou shalt not kill. When it comes to self-defense, it is not considered murder. When it comes to war and, a ju- and just war and all that other, other stuff, there are different principles. It is not considered murder. And one of the reasons that capital punishment is what it is in Scripture is because men then take seriously the law of God when they realize what is at stake. In the book of Deuteronomy, actually, in a few different places, God says that this form of punishment sets an example to people, and it offers up a deterrent for future crime. So men who, who may die for their crime will probably reconsider again whether they want to go through with it. So self-government is always the aim, and it helps to see the boundary clearly. Third thing, enforce just weights and measures. This includes prohibiting fiat money, which leads to inflation, which leads to economic instability, There is to be justice even in the realm of economics and money. We don't have time to go too far into that one. Number four, to protect and defend its citizens. This includes the unborn. This includes the widow and the orphan. This looks like citizen police and militia, um, which we have some semblance of. But when the police state grows, when the Messiah state grows, we have other issues. But this also looks like laws that prevent, for example, accidental death. One of the laws in the Old Testament was to have a fence around your rooftop so that no one would fall off. How many guys have that? I mean, it's getting, weather's getting great out. We should hang out on the rooftop. We don't do that anymore. So we take the principle. The principle is liability, which means you should put a fence around your pool. 
See, God's law is perfect. So protection and defense of people is actually one of the aims of the civil magistrate in scripture. Number five. Yep, we're going to go there. Enact just taxation. Taxation levels right now are astronomical. 200 years ago, our our people destroyed tea in a harbor in Boston over much less. Just taxation, righteous taxation in scripture looks like two things. One, it must be less than 10%. God requires 10% for his kingdom and anything over 10% is actually a claim to sovereignty. One of the taxes in the Old Testament was a head tax for males. It's got to be low enough so that everybody can afford it. And it's got to be voluntary, not confiscatory. Two, it must be used only for payment for enforcing justice. There is no need for things like sales tax and so on. Um, That should be free trade, free exchange between people. The government should have, civil government should have nothing to do with that. Much of our taxation system is very unbiblical. For example, property tax is unbiblical because God owns the land, not the state. Okay? God owns the land, not the state. Property tax is also unbiblical because it's theft. It forces people by threat of taking their property to pay for education, which the state has no business of being involved in. Um, Confiscatory taxation is immoral. It steals from people. You don't ever actually own your house, do you? Try not paying your taxes. Let me know how that goes. It's not actually yours. You're paying rent to the state. It's immoral. Death tax is unbiblical because the state is not the firstborn. It takes the inheritance that is due a man's offspring and it steals it. Yanks it. Right? I remember when I got my first paycheck. I worked at a... My, one of my first jobs was bailing hay in the middle of August in Michigan, right? It was hot. But I learned a lot. It was great. Um, one of my first jobs, though, in, in high school was um, working in a grocery store, a local, local um, grocery store, um, the Morency Super Value, it was called. It's changed, obviously. But I stocked shelves and learned how to make not very much money. But I remember getting my first check and thinking, who is, who's this Fika person? <laughs> then I had to learn that the government took my money. The use of taxes to create economic equality, however one subjectively defines that, and you hear it all the time, pay your fair share, pay your fair share. The, the use of taxes to try and arbitrarily create this economic equality by redistribution is actually an attack on private property. Biblically speaking, it's an attack on private property. A government who thinks that it can violate God's commandments is a government who thinks it's the savior. So things like socialism socialism and communism, for example, are sinful because those entire philosophies, they're, they're human concoctions, they're built on violating several of the Ten Commandments. It's theft, it's covetousness, it's greed. It's immoral because the state is responsible to govern according to God's word. So, the civil magistrate is God's servant, commissioned to preserve order in society through the administration of God's law and justice. The magistrate is supposed to proclaim the terms and conditions of biblical law to everyone so that they can actually conform to its standards. The goal of the government is not salvation. Okay? It's not the role of the government. That's the role of the church. The goal of civil government should be self-government. The goal of a, of a magistrate is to see to it that men govern themselves 
by enforcing God's judicial law. And they are not, they're not an institution of healing. They're an institution of justice. So when the state's goal is to try and manage people, manage families, and get, put their hands in places they shouldn't, they try to manage even churches. They try to manage individuals. They cross those spheres up. They cross the jurisdiction, and ultimately they usurp God's sovereignty. So again, it's not an institution of salvation. Salvation cannot and does not ever happen by law. Its function is to restrain evil, to provide justice, and organize itself as a system of law enforcement. Whereby, as Gary North says, I love this line, men and women can work out their salvations and their damnations, or their damnations, with fear and trembling. So the state is, is ministerial. It ministers what God wants. It's not salvational. It can't save you. You shouldn't look to it to save you. So when civil governments try to, to make men good, they're already crossing that boundary. They're going somewhere where they should not have gone. Scripture doesn't give them permission to go there. Now, what about the ch- separation of church and state? Great question. Glad you asked. In our nation, much of our problems stem from what I mentioned before. Even in the Declaration of Independence, there wasn't a clear articulation of the sovereignty of God underneath the lordship and authority of King Jesus. The first amendment in our constitution was to prevent a church of the United States of America. That's what they wanted to get rid of. This was not to be a separation of religion and state, nor was it to be a separation of morality and state. So there, there is no neutrality. All this was simply a way to prevent the problems of what they had experienced in England. Now, the majority of the 13 colonies, the majority of them had established churches. You had Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and so forth. So the problem in our nation came when we we tried to subtly keep Christ out of his proper sovereign place to now anything goes. Circles can be squares and two plus two can be nine. So in the name of religious neutrality, religious pluralism, statism now, humanism are the gods that rule our nation. But statism didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't arise because of one particular thing. It isn't out of God's sovereign hands either, we should say. Statism is what God gives people who refuse to govern themselves and be governed by him. From Egypt to Babylon, from Persia to Greece, even lining up all the way to Rome, God grants people the desires of their hearts And what people have wanted in this country is for the federal government to take care of them, to provide for them, right, to falsely protect them. So men have given up the law of liberty, as found in the book of James. He says that phrase, the law of liberty. They've given up this law of liberty, which means they neither have law, they neither have liberty. But now they have lawlessness and oppression. And all of this is because Messiah's name in in America is America. Remember, there's no neutrality. We have asked for this. Christians are the first in line to be blamed for this. We have, we have sent our kids to Caesar, and now we're surprised they became Roman. We have bent over backwards in order to placate the wrath of, of the state. We'll do whatever you say. Just give us this religious freedom. Let me tell you something. Religious freedom comes from God, not the state. Statism is a works-based religion, and we bought it. And I think the reason we are to blame is not only because judgment starts with the house of God, as Peter says, as the salt goes, so goes the meat, right? The trampling that all of you feel in our culture right now, we've lost our saltiness. And for far too long, we've worshipped other idols. And for far too long, we have not repented. And when you read your Bible, you'll see that the reason that despots and tyrants come to power is so that the church will repent. 
Contrary to what Aaron said in Exodus, golden calves don't just make themselves. We gladly produce them, gladly decorate them, and gladly celebrate them. And until the church repents from political pragmatism and expediency, until the church repents for, from forsaking the law of God, until the church repents from silly escapism and eschatological fornication, until we repent for thinking that there are places where Christ is not king, we will not get out of this mess quickly. And the state is not a means to solve our problems. The state cannot solve moral problems. It cannot solve spiritual problems. It can only create them. So whether you believe this or not, we become a socialistic empire that God hates. We've become entirely dependent upon this, the collectivism problem in philosophy. You'll hear politicians, right? It's all about the children because we, the children are for us. No, they're not. You will not touch my child. That's why they'll continue to all this rhetoric. It's all about the children. We need to shape the future for our children. No, you don't. You need to follow God and be quiet. They don't belong to Herod. And the only way we get out of this is by repentance. It's actually at its root level why all of this is a worship problem. We've not only bowed to Pharaoh, we've actually complimented his hat. If we want this to stop, the nation must repent. We must submit to Christ as the only king and see the state's powers dwindle away, stripped away almost completely. Until the church gets to the point where she is desperate enough to repent, to truly repent, we will see statism in our nation grow and Christianity be persecuted. But alas, we're not desperate enough. The Tower of Babel actually looks great in the sunset. When we are ready to submit to the Lordship of Christ in all things, including civil government, God will be pleased to restore us. He will. But until then, we have a war on our hands, and though we won't lose, we may suffer some casualties. I already hear this stuff about pastors got to turn over their sermons. They're online. Just go there. Gladly. But at the center of all of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he was enthroned, he was lifted up for forgiveness of sins so that men could not only govern each other, but they could govern themselves by worshiping him, by following him. And that's our politic. And that's the greatest news ever, that you can be forgiven. And it's time we tell everyone about this king. Let's pray. Father, we absolutely adore you. We have attempted to behold your glory as you sit on your throne. We confess to you our sins. We confess to you the sins of this nation. Like Daniel, we ask for divine help because we absolutely have no excuses. We don't have a defense, but we do have your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to rescue us, to save us by your divine grace, for taking on flesh and getting your hands dirty, all so that we might be saved. We are undeserving, that's for sure, and yet you have called us your sons and you have called us your daughters. Spirit of God, would you come and bring conviction? Would you convict the world of sin and judgment, as your word says? Would you bring the gospel message to bear in our hearts so that we will not lose hope? Would you make real to us the warmth of his grace? Bring us near to Christ while we come and partake of his table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.